All right, we're back. We're here with Mark Carpenter. Uh, He's got all kinds of cool and interesting stories about giants and uh, ancient history. And uh, we just wanted to have him on the podcast to kind of pick his brain and figure out what he's most passionate about right now and uh, what kind of things he's working on. But first, Mark, thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, let's uh, let's dig in a little bit, if you don't mind, to your uh, your background. You know, what kind of uh, background do you have in? Uh, uh, I know you've got some background in archaeology, those type of things. Just kind of build a, a scaffolding for the rest of the conversation, if you don't mind. Sure, sure. Uh, well, I became fascinated with all this when I was just a pup. Um, we have family. We have family in, in Ohio. And my father and I used to take road trips from North Carolina, where I grew up, to Ohio. And we would drive through the Ohio River Valley, and we would see the mounds. You know, we went to Serpent Mound. And I was a curious kid, and I, I wanted to know. You know, I peppered my father with questions. what, Who made these? What exactly are they? And then later on, actually, I went with him on a business trip to Europe, and we saw Stonehenge. Ooh. And uh, I was really hooked at that point. I, I needed to know. I needed to know what what this was all about. And he he was an inte- he's an intelligent guy, but he didn't. He's educated, intelligent guy, but he didn't really have answers that satisfied me. And then as I got older and I became more formally educated, I, I found even academia was lacking in in answers, and it. I'm just a stubborn fighter of a person. I, I can't, I can't sit with, with not knowing I have to know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's really where it began. And then that culminated in um, studying archeology span and anthropology in college. And um, there, at UNC Chapel Hill, there was a, a program involving archeology span of the Maya and the Yucatan Peninsula. And so that was really, but, but besides that, I, I've lived alongside Native American tribes. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with Cherokee and Ojibwa and First Nation ancient traditions. I had some contact with, with some elders there. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, and then I also spent time, I lived on Maui. Uh, for a period of time and I studied Polynesian culture and I had a, a, a friend there who's a, an elder tradition keeper as well yeah so that's really the foundation of it all yeah and uh, the thing that we liked about you uh, I believe we heard you on Blurry Creatures shout out to Blurry Creatures but uh, what we liked about the conversation you were having with them is that you tied all of the um, giant type of um, um, findings, arche- archaeological findings with the Bible. And uh, we thought that that was a huge um, and very important um, connection to make. And that's what we found. And so um, could you maybe tell us some stories or some of your findings um, that link these this phenomena of giants uh, in ancient cultures and even today and all the sightings that people are having with uh, the Bible? Absolutely. 
So when I was studying the Maya, I, I was particularly fascinated with the site known as Palenque. And I became fascinated with that site because rulers were discovered there entombed within pyramids. And these pyramids, beneath them, really. And these pyramids are covered in hieroglyphs. So I determined, and at the time, as a young archaeology, anthropology student, I figured this was the ideal place to try to get to the bottom of this pyramid mystery. Because I figured here is pyramids that have glyphic information on them. We've got these people discovered, entombed beneath them. And, well, and it just so happened that UNC Chapel Hill had a, a very direct pipeline into Mayan art. Some, some of the great uh, Mayanists, if you will, uh, were involved in the program. So, so that, was, that was what led me there. And, but, but to segue into your question, what I ended up, so I sought to, to understand pyramids, the pyramid phenomena. Mm -hmm. But what I ended up finding was linkage to the biblical narrative, as well as a cover-up. And so that was really what set me on this winding road. Yeah, you stumbled into a rabbit hole, my friend, and uh, you you found a lot of uh, interesting things along the way. That's 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 for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. It's it's quite it's quite the rabbit hole. <clears throat> so um, when you were searching and um, trying to understand the pyramids and everything like that, and these bodies were found. Um, what did that spark in you, this interest to dig more, you know, cause some people would just be like, oh, that's cool. They'd read it on an article on the internet or something. But for yeah. you, this has really launched you into a lifelong project. Yeah. Well, so what, what ended up happening was the, the rulers, uh, of which I previously mentioned Pakal and the red queen. Hmm. These are the two rulers who were discovered in the uh, beneath the pyramids in sarcophagi. Uh, well, actually, the Red Queen, her her burial chamber was up much much higher, and Pakal's was down below the pyramid. But that's neither here nor there. What I came to learn about them was that they were very large. They were very large in stature. The iconography of Palenque was loaded with polydactyly so that mm -hmm. means extra numeracy toes and fingers mm -hmm. there, were, there were lots of icons who were relatives or descendants or predecessors of Bacall and the red queen who were depicted with six fingers or and or toes they both had deformed skulls their skulls are what what anthropologists classify as tabular oblique so that means like they they're they're they bulb out backwards, almost like a like a horizontal peanut. And then furthermore, they were cannibalistic. There was ritualized cannibalism practice here. 
And that's along with human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And uh, they also had uh, modification to their teeth. They, they, their teeth had been filed to points to some extent, and there were also jade inlays, like, like grills, like you see with the wrappers these days. Oh, okay. But the, but the, well, there were a lot of strange things besides that. Um, so I'm giving you guys the highlights. Um, but, but as I got a under, greater understanding of the culture of the whole center and, and the religion, what you have is a really highly stratified society, meaning, meaning the God King rulers over here. And then everybody else is essentially their slaves. Mm -hmm. And their, their whole culture revolves around this pantheon of deities. Um, the primary of whom is Kukulkan and Kukulkan is a, demonic dragon said to live underground in what they call Jabalba, the place of fright, meaning, mm. meaning the underworld, the subterranean mm -hmm. realm. Okay. And okay. So this triggers in me uh, a, a memory. I wasn't at the time, I wasn't very biblical, but I had read some, some degree of the Bible and this triggered in me a direct connection to the Nephilim. So if you, if you look at Samuel 21, it says uh, it's describing a relative of the famous Goliath, who was also a giant, but his relative uh, who was also slain in, in, a, in a separate battle, he was said to have gigantic stature and six fingers and toes. Furthermore, uh, the Nephilim, as per the book of Enoch, were said to be cannibalistic. And then finally, if you go all the way to the book of Revelation and the Antichrist, this is a, uh, a figure who comes along who seems suspiciously Nephilim, and he forces the entire world to worship the dragon. And that triggered, all of that triggered to me a lot of correlation. Um, specifically because it seemed to me that the ruling elite were genetically distinct of the Maya. Mm -hmm. The ruling elite of the Maya were genetically distinct, and they had imposed this dragon cult onto the indigenous Maya. Okay. So that all had a great deal of biblical linkage uh, to me. Yeah, I would say so. And it, and it's very clear, you know, it's, it's not like you're, you're reaching, especially when you say a six fingered, um, deity, uh, slash ruler, uh, you it, instantly in people's minds, they begin to think like, okay, this guy's making stuff up. But you, when you see it in, in documentation over here that people have found this and then you see it in the bible it's pretty clear like if i was to say six-fingered person everybody would be like what you've been watching too much of that princess bride movie and i'm like no i'm talking about real stuff here it's in the bible and it's really been documented as findings and i find that fascinating yeah we we are men of action lies do not become us <laughs> yeah, there right. you go <laughs> But so, um, yeah, well, and for, for any of those naysayers, 
I would direct them to the research of uh, Patricia Crown, I believe is her name. Um, but so this six-fingered thing goes uh, very deep, and it's it's well-established archaeology even here in North America. Hmm. So in in New Mexico in Chaco Canyon, the ruling elite who I also tie into the Maya as well. And that's not, I say I tie them in there, but, but actually it's, it's the Navajo. Uh, the Navajo have a tradition mm-hmm. um, that the, the founder of Chaco Canyon came from Mexico and was a Mayan demigod. But the, the point is Patricia uh, Crown's research reveals that the ruling elite of Chaco Canyon were polydactyls. And she, you know, she's a mainstream archaeologist, and there's uh, there's archaeological remains that not only show that the ruling elite had six fingers and toes, but that this was also regarded as a sign of their divinity. And if anybody wants to check up on that really easily, there's a Nat Geo article entitled Extra Toes and Fingers Were Revered in Ancient Times. And so this is not remotely fringe. I know this is the fringy universe, but um, actually, (laughs) you know, what's really ironic about about the whole fringe thing is it's only fringe because the establishment decides it is fringe. Right, exactly. So they know precisely that this is true. Um, And there's more there's more fringe there. Uh, if you look to the work of Professor, uh, he's deceased now, but uh, Professor uh, Christy Turner. He was an anthropologist, I want to say at the University of Arizona, one of those Southwestern universities. But Professor Christy Turner and his wife, also Professor Turner, they spent their whole lives proving uh, definitively that Chaco Canyon and this corresponding cult was extremely cannibalistic Hmm. we're talking mass cannibalism on on a on a horrific scale 20 30 people at a time really gruesome stuff i could go into it more but you honestly don't want to know some of these details yeah i think we could probably imagine you know what what a a, a massive uh, human skeletal system can do to you know smaller ones. Um, there's there's lots of uh, evidence that these these things were tall, but not only tall, um, you know, thick bones and those type of things. Right. I've read lots of stuff like that. Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, no problem. So in in 2008, again, we're going mainstream archaeology and anthropology here. In 2008, in Denisova Cave, Siberia, um, ancient, very, very, very ancient bones were discovered. And among them was a tooth. And this tooth is enormous. When they found it, they thought this tooth must belong to a an extinct species of bear from the Pleistocene, the Ice Age. Hmm. And these bears were bigger than grizzlies. And when, when a grizzly stands on its hind leg, you know, a grizzly bear is like, what, 1,000, 1,200 pounds? Mm-hmm. And when they yeah. stand on their hind legs, they're like 
12, 13 feet tall. So they found this tooth. They thought it was a bear tooth. Turns out it's a human tooth. And they did genetic analysis on this tooth, and they discovered that it was neither Homo sapien nor Neanderthal. Hence the forging of a new species, Denisovan. Hmm. Furthermore, furthermore, they found that also in the DNA of this tooth was a another even more ancient and mysterious human ancestor. Now you've got me hooked. I'm intrigued. Yeah. I have to know. <laughs> I know. Well, so well, so they don't they didn't even they don't that's just they've just swept that under the rug. Like, oh yeah, there's another spooky human ancestor out there. But but what's really interesting about this tooth is anthropologists know perfectly well that a large tooth means a large jawbone and a large jawbone means a large skeleton uh, skull Mm -hmm. and a large skull means a large torso and the whole thing can be used not to precisely say how large something was a primate but definitely enough to forge a very accurate scale model and they and I can prove this. This is not theoretical because they did so with uh, Gigantopithecus. So so Gigantopithecus, really quick, all they ever found of Gigantopithecus were teeth and jawbones. And based on the size of those teeth and those jawbones, they created officially a, a species of of ancient primate. With that they regard as like a thirteen foot tall orangutan. Wow. Hmm. So the point the point I'm making here is, if those teeth and jawbones can be used to determine the species of humongous orangutan, then absolutely this tooth. And by the way, huge jawbones to accompany this tooth have uh, uh, been discovered after the fact in China. These these teeth and jawbones, which are absolutely monstrous, uh, they they it's a scientific fact that they belong to a human that was 10, 12 feet tall minimum. Hmm. And and extremely uh, dense. The density is actually more amazing than the height. The density is like two, three times that of a human adult molar. This thing was absolutely enormous, massive, massive hominid living in a cave in Siberia uh, tens of thousands of years ago. Was it at Chaco Canyon where they were having like they could they were having that issue with the bones that they found that they were so much more dense than an average human bone? Is that where that was? Um, I, I can't speak to the density of bones discovered at Chaco Canyon. I know that that many Neanderthal, this is a common thing with Neanderthal bones that have been found throughout Europe. Neanderthal bones are extremely dense. Uh, they even, again, mainstream, staying in the mainstream, they, they claim that Neanderthals must have been a, a lot uh, more stout than, than Homo sapiens. And we, we, we find this also in, like, gorilla bones. 
And if you just look at a gorilla versus like a homo sapien, you can see their massive muscular frame. That's mm-hmm. what dense bones indicate. Dense mm. bones indicate a huge frame of, of musculature. And so it is it is scientific fact that Denisovan and Neanderthal were beasts of, of muscle, like way beyond anything you could imagine with a homo sapien not even like a huge homo sapien like shaquille o'neal or something right. no 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 a, a gorilla a gorilla would toss shaquille o'neal around like he was a rag doll yeah yeah wow and, and whatever the you know these these hominids who i equate to the biblical nephilim were absolutely massive massive beasts with incredible physical strength that's insane. And we see evidence for all of this in the Bible, in the, in the narrative of the Bible, you know, and there's, there's a lot of evidence of giants and, you know, putting those two things together, the Bible and, and all of this evidence, it really begins to um, make you salivate for more information, you know, because things in the Bible uh, haven't made some sense. Certain things in the Bible haven't made some sense, but when you add this type of context to it, you begin to realize that this um, the Nephilim were a lot bigger deal. Uh, the hybrids and the and the hybrids mating with humans and and it, all down the line, you know, you've you've probably got Nephilim DNA all throughout uh, humanity at this point. Sure. Well, well, actually. That's that's definitely true because what well and I, I should probably so when it when it comes to the cover up and academia and institutional science, this is where it all gets very convoluted. And the reason for that, I believe, is is a deliberate distortion. And that's hard that's hard for the common person to accept. And I sympathize because when I was a young archeology span anthropology student, I had this naive idea that scientists were the good guys, that Mm -hmm. the, the, the education system and institutional science is not that at all. Um, the, the, these institutions are founded by people, guess what, who have all the money, and who have very, very real and sinister agendas for shaping the hearts and minds of the public who they consider their subjects. Yeah. Yep. And um, so specifically on that, we're, we're, if we're talking about the education system in America, well, that was essentially founded by John D. Rockefeller. Mm-hmm. John D. Rockefeller put hundreds of millions into the Board of Education before there was a Board of Education, and he essentially invented it. And by the way, John D. Rockefeller was a sociopath. Yes, (laughs) he was. Fun fact. (laughs) His His father was known as Devil Bill, and Devil Bill Rockefeller was literally a snake oil salesman who traveled the country perpetrating all manner of cons and frauds you know on 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 simple rural people hustling them and swindling them out of their money then he got into real estate deals and he got into hunting for oil swindling these backwoods people out of their oil rich land 
and he became very, very wealthy. He was also a rapist and a murderer, by the way. Right. <laughs> and 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 uh, and Devil Bill raised his son. Uh, and this is not me. This is not me saying this. This is historians saying this. He raised his son to be a sociopath. He he drowned every every uh, bit of trust that he had. Constantly lied to him mm-hmm. and, and deceived him. And and I, forgive me for that digression. But I want people to understand. Yeah, I want people to understand the education system is not remotely what they think it is. And John D. Rockefeller said, "Quote." I don't want thinkers. I want workers. So the education system was designed to pump out and produce industrial slaves. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, then you've got the Smith Smithsonian that you can throw into the mix and all of the cover up that they're doing there to take, to take these bones and to hide them and all of these different things. I don't uh, I don't know why they're doing it other than to hide this very fact. I mean, it, if you were going to be a detective and go through and do some motive and where's the money and blah, 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 all that stuff, you're always going to come to the conclusion that it is a cover up. And and you and you can surmise that just by the weird activity. I mean, I'm sure you've got plenty of examples of the Smithsonian having weird activity. I do. I do. And actually, um, I'm glad you segued us in there because I want to take the whole Smithsonian uh, bones cover up and I want to go ahead and nail a coffin nail in it so it is definitive. Yes. In, in 96 or 7, I think it was 96, in Kennewick, Washington, a skeleton was discovered, uh, henceforth known as Kennewick Man. Now, this is one of the most important skeletons ever discovered in North America because it is so ancient. It's, it's nearly 10,000 years old. Yeah, I've heard about this one. It's very, very ancient for, for a North American skeleton. So just to sum it up really quickly, there was a nine-year intensive legal battle over the skeleton between Native Americans of the PNW and the Smithsonian uh, and the federal government in general, I think it was actually the uh, Corps, Mil- uh, Corps of Engineers, uh, which makes no sense why they were even involved in it. Well, actually, it makes perfect sense, but we, we won't even go there right now. But, yeah, yeah, I digress. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, the point is this. Because there was such a fearsome legal battle over these remains... Well, and there was also there was also a scientific battle over these remains because many of the scientists who initially studied it said it was certainly not Native American. So there were controversies among controversies among controversies. And this triggered mainstream media to go to the Smithsonian and say, we want photos of this skeleton. Uh uh oh. They are now caught in a situation where they cannot deny that they have this skeleton and these mainstream media people, corrupt and incompetent though they may be, were not involved in this cover-up. So what were they going to do? They had no choice but to let NPR, uh, CNN, and, and, and people like this photograph the skeleton. Okay. 
when they release these photos, what we find uh, in, in an objective examination of these photos is that Kennewick man had a radically deformed skull. I would say three or four times more radically deformed than the Mayan rulers we talked about earlier. One of the most radically deformed, and it wasn't tabular oblique either. It was more cone, uh, conical oblique. So a uh, really radically deformed skull and not just the cranium, the ocular cavities, you know, must be 30, 40% larger than homo sapien ocular cavities. Wow. Uh, furthermore, really careful examination of these photographs. And, and by the way, these photographs were published by the Smithsonian. So Chip, Chip Clark, is, is his name is on it. He's a Smithsonian scientist. So I examined these photos very carefully and found that on Kennewick Man's right hand, he had five fingers on top of his palm. So index through pointer, there were five fingers and he had no thumb. So Kennewick Man absolutely had six fingers a radically deformed skull and huge freaky eyes. And none of this was ever, ever mentioned by the Smithsonian. And at least two dozen Smithsonian scientists examined these remains. Right. There's no way they somehow failed to notice uh, these radical features. Then, then immediately after those photos were released, every photo after that, was of replicas that they made. And the replicas, guess what, looked just like a regular old Homo sapien uh, skull and skeleton. And to this day, in Kennewick, Washington, there's a little shoebox of a museum. And if you go in there, they have a photo of the replica and a plaque next to it. And all it says is, oh, look at this really ancient Native American. Isn't that cool? Rick actually so, lived in Kennewick for oh, 10 years, 12 really? years. Yeah. Oh, wow. I've, I've seen the museum um, and I've seen the replica. Um, they actually teach that uh, going oh, back God. to the education system. They actually <laughs> teach that in the schools. It's actually, that's kind of a big deal, you know, because, and, and, and it's not the town's folks fault for wanting to, um, have something cool that was discovered in their town and so they're trying to they're trying to teach the kids and trying to say hey our town's cool look what we found here but what they're doing is just you know furthering the lie on down the line generation to generation and uh yeah. when you see it that way it's disgusting yeah and that's the that's the that's the bane of my existence you know, is going around trying to tell people that you got to read in between the lines that you have to. And then, you know, that's just part of my personality. Like if somebody tells me something, I'm not going to accept it. I have to go and research it out for myself. Sure. Yeah. No, you and Rick would get along great there. <laughs> um, the, the main takeaway of that whole Kennewick uh, fiasco is that it proves definitively that the Smithsonian is indeed lying and concealing 
facts regarding very ancient skeletons discovered in North America. So when you see all these other alternative researchers talking about bones were discovered in mounds and they were shipped off to the Smithsonian and covered up, and then the skeptics say, oh, well, you know, there's no evidence of, of you know, you're, that's convenient for you because there's no evidence. Well, but see, I have evidence, Kennewick Man. And Kennewick Man is the smoking gun that proves the Smithsonian is lying. And on top of that, you can also look into, um, you can look into the Bureau of Ethnology reports. The, the Bureau of Ethnology is the Smithsonian before it was called the Smithsonian. And in their own reports, they do indeed indicate that they unearthed seven, seven and a half foot tall skeletons from burial mounds. So it's a fact the Smithsonian is corrupt institution and they are lying. Yeah. Yeah. When you break it all down and you present all the research, I mean, it really comes down to the individual to say, I believe that or I don't believe that. And there's enough evidence in my mind, if you were to put it before a jury, that you would say, yes, there's enough evidence to say that the Smithsonian is corrupt and all of the evidence uh, leads up to this huge question now is, what are they? Where do they come from? Why are they in the ground in Kennewick? All of these different things. Well, I would, I would submit to you that they are Nephilim descendants. So, so if we go back to the biblical narrative and look for more clues, since we've already found corroborating evidence here in North America, and by the way, We've really just skimmed the surface. If you talk to the Native Americans about their traditions, I mean, what the heck? I'll give you an example. Um, so there's the Cherokee tradition of, of what they call Nunyunui. And Nunyunui is Cherokee, which means uh, dressed in stone. And dressed in stone is a reference uh, well, okay, let me tell you the story. So there was a Cherokee hunter boy who uh, was after thine own heart. He didn't, he didn't go with the flow. And they were out on a hunting expedition. And uh, he looked up to the, the Highland Plateau, very high elevation. And he said, why don't we hunt up there? And they said, no, 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 we don't go up there. It's not worth it. You know, it's, it's, it, it's forbidden. And he, he wasn't, he, he wasn't hearing that. He, he wanted to know what was up there. So this uh, brave explorer, hunter boy, he, he climbs up there. And while he's up there, he suddenly gets the sense that he's not alone. So he hides. And when he's hiding, he's peering out through these bushes and he sees something really bizarre. He sees a giant old bearded man who's walking around with some sort of uh, cane, some sort of staff made of stone or, or crystal, perhaps. And the old man is behind. Uh, behaving very strangely and he's very large and and he just looks peculiar he doesn't look 
normal. And uh, the boy is terrified, but he just remains hidden. And then he he watches, and he's watching this 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 peculiar old man from a distance. And he sees the the man uh, uh, using this this cane, this staff, to do seemingly supernatural things. Like he's he's able to uh, levitate. It's not exactly clear. They they say he's able to travel over gaps. There were like there were like gaps uh, between mountain crevices, crevasses, and he's somehow using this staff to uh, travel over them. And the boy is terrified. And uh, once the and and he also notices the the guy, the old man, is like sniffing. He keeps going to the edge of the rock face and he's sniffing this way and sniffing that way. The boy gets freaked out. And once there's enough different distance between them, he runs back down and rejoins the hunting party. They go, they go back to the village and they, the boy tells the medicine man about what he saw. And the medicine man informs him that that's non who is a cannibalistic giant who lives up in the mountains and is very, very dangerous. And he said, the medicine man said, if you saw him that close, then he's going to come for us. From there, it gets really strange. Um, apparently, the medicine man uh, identifies the, the kryptonite of this Nunyunui. And, and by the way, Dressed in stone is a reference to his uh, skin, which they say is scaly and almost uh, stone-like and cannot be penetrated by normal Native American weapons. Long story short, uh, what, what the kryptonite of this Nunyunui is menstrual blood. So, so they gather together all the young ladies who are on their moon and they create sort of a trap for this nun you knew we. And he appears just as they suspected. And the women surround him and he, he becomes ill. He becomes ill and he, 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 it, it works like a charm and he's weakened. And in his weakened state, they tie him down and they, they start to burn. And, and he, but he's like immortal. He's like a vampire. They can't kill him. Killing him is this really long, drawn-out process. And eventually, they set to burning him. And as he's burning away, he starts revealing all these secrets of witchcraft and, and, and magic. And finally, after like two days of this, he finally completely expires. And all that is left of him is his heart, which is a, uh, a crystal or gemstone. And that is the Cherokee legend of Nunyunui. That's insane. I mean, that, that blows my mind to think that that is a real story. And, and again, what's the motive you know, for a person to want to make up a story like that, you know, it, it, it yeah. seems very self-explanatory that, that these people aren't messing around. Well, well, let me, let me touch on that for a moment. 
the Native Americans don't tell fictional stories. Now, now, okay, you might hear a Native American story and you'd be like, Mark, that's definitely fiction. But that's, that, that's a misunderstanding. First of all, they don't tell stories for entertainment. They regard stories as medicine. And medicine to them does not mean like, you know, a, a pill you take to, to cure a physical ailment. But it does mean medicine in terms of something that you need to keep yourself well and right. So you need a, a regular dose of medicine and storytelling is an integral part of their like physical, mental and spiritual well-being. So they don't make up BS because it sounds cool. Now, okay, it now it is stylized. So that's where people get confused between fiction and stylized. Like if you saw a rocket launch and you say, wow, I saw this, you know, I saw this big metal uh, pillar fire, you know, and a great fire arose underneath it until it propelled itself up into the heavens. Well, somebody who's never seen a rocket launcher doesn't know what the hell a rocket is. They might say to you, well, you're telling me fictional BS. But you're just stylizing the real events the way that you know how to express them. And that's what the Native Americans do. And so when they relay an account like that, when they relay an account like that, there's no doubt the nucleus of it is a real event that they are passing along as part of the well-being of the community. Absolutely. I love hearing all the different stories. Um, I know there was, there was another guy on Blurry Creatures that was talking about um, the shapeshifters and how... The skinwalkers. Yes, yes, the skinwalkers. And it's so interesting to me. And it, it makes mm -hmm. sense that it, it, you know, these, it is like medicine, like you said, they're, they continue to tell these stories, I assume down generationally, so that they know what to look out for, where not to go, you know, kind of a thing. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, since you mentioned the skinwalkers, so they, so they, you remember those six fingered cannibalistic people of Chaco Canyon I was mentioning before? Yeah. Well, they are, they are the skinwalkers. Interesting. The, the Navajo will tell you. So the Navajo and the Hopi are rather terrified of Chaco Canyon still to this day. Okay. And they will tell you that the rulers of Chaco Canyon were very powerful. Now they mean this in sort of like a, 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 a political warfare type sense. They were powerful in that way, but they also mean supernaturally. They mean, they mean their witchcraft. And they will they will the Navajo and the Hopi and and other tribes the 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 Utes um, the Ute and the, the Paiute they will tell you that 
um, the rulers of Chaco Canyon could control people, they could control animals, and they could control the weather. Wow. And they mean, they mean through these bloody, gruesome rituals that they would perform, empowered them supernaturally to manipulate the minds of people, the behaviors of animals, and the weather. And yes, indeed, they could perform these rituals in which they would shapeshift into creatures of the night. Wow. And there, there's a biblical link there as well. Oh, tell me. <laughs> yeah. So, so during the uh, during the Hebrews' early conquest of Canaan, they are instructed. They they are instructed to eradicate this certain people known as the Amalekites. And this is a very touchy subject in biblical scholarship. A lot of people have trouble reconciling a good and just God of the, of the Hebrews with this command to slaughter all the women and children, every single Amalekite, and even their livestock is commanded by the Hebrew God to be obliterated. The, the Hebrew word for it is herim, and it means to, to annihilate the memory of. So like God was commanding them not just to kill them and, or displace them and take their territory, but to completely and utterly eradicate them. And people look at that and they say, oh, what, these people were like non-believers or something? Like, how could they possibly deserve this? And, and people say that it's genocide. Right, right. Um, okay, but if you, if you look into the, um, the Talmudic uh, teachings of some of the, the wisest rabbis, in, in fact, probably the greatest rabbi is known as Rashi. That's his nickname. But, but Rashi was a French uh, medieval rabbi. And he's basically the Michael Jordan of rabbis. And Rashi explained that the Amalekites were cannibalistic sorcerers. The, the name Amalekite means blood lickers, meaning they drank blood. And, and also the land of Canaan was home to Nephilim descendants. Uh, the six-figured uh, guy we mentioned before and uh, various other Canaanite uh, tribes were Nephilim descendants. Okay, so the reason the Hebrew God commanded them to annihilate women, children, and livestock was because of their blood drinking and sorcery, they were able to shapeshift into animals or children or old old people and in doing so they were going to escape conquest and and God's God's genetic agenda there 
was to rid the entire planet of these invasive hybrids. You see, it's, it's just like here in Maryland, where we have snakehead fish. They are an invasive species that have no natural predators, but they were introduced to the tributaries um, um, by Asian immigrants. And so the point is, what happens when you have an invasive species is they eat everything in sight and they grow unnaturally large and they, they can decimate an entire ecosystem. So this campaign, I'm wrapping this up here, this campaign against the Amalekites was not about like cruelty or genocide or ethnic cleansing or anything like that. It was about eradicating these demonic invasive hybrids yeah. who were eating people. Yeah. Wow. I'm so glad you made that connection. And that, and that all, that all correlates um, to the, to the six fingered ruling elite of Chaco Canyon, who were also cannibalistic, shape-shifting, skinwalker sorcerers. And what's really amazing about what we just talked about is it seems their carryover into North America was precisely what the Hebrew God was attempting to prevent. Eradicate them so they don't spread to all corners of the world and go on eating people and practicing witchcraft. And, and they failed. The, and, and according to the narrative, Samuel failed in his task to annihilate them. And they did indeed escape and proliferate. And that would seem to be validated uh, by the Chaco Canyon cult, which was a horrific, horrific uh, occurrence. Yeah, wow. Wow, what uh, what an incredible story! What an incredible episode! I think that um, that's a lot for our audience to digest. So we might just let them chew on all of this uh, for a while, and uh, maybe we'll have you back um, to talk more about all this. All right, you guys, that's it for us. Uh, thank you, Mark. 